HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. We're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware, a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecreuset.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com. Welcome to The Line here on Heritage Radio. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Chef Claire DeBoer. She is the co-head chef of King, located in Manhattan, where she and fellow chef Jess Shadbolt, who was on the show about five episodes ago, have created a restaurant that has been described as entering a dinner party cooked by a very talented, very welcoming friend. From the small open kitchen, they put out refined dishes such as poached ox tongue with fingerlings, celery hearts, and tarragon vinaigrette, and plates of wild halibut grilled with asparagus, lentils, sorrel, and marinated anchovy. The restaurant serves whatever Claire and Jess wish to cook. It's inspired by Italy and France, and it has been met with critical acclaim. Among other top awards that they have, the restaurant was praised by the New York Times. Pete Wells gave it two stars and a glowing review, and both chefs were named Food & Wine's Best New Chefs for 2018. Uh, coming from London and previously working at the River Cafe, they both moved to New York and have fast rows in the New York City food scene. Today we'll discuss growing up, family picnics in France and Italy on vacation, Ballymaloo Cooking School in Ireland, and opening up a restaurant in arguably the toughest restaurant city in the world. Claire, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I want to talk as we often do at the beginning about childhood, growing up in England. And also, uh, if I read this correctly, you spent a lot of your childhood vacationing in Italy in the south of France. Is that correct? Yeah. And so what is that childhood like? Uh, visiting these locations that, you know, often people only go one time in their life. You were fortunate enough to spend um, some of your early childhood in two of the most fantastic food areas of the entire well, world. I um, I actually, so I actually moved from England when I was four and I moved to New Delhi in India where I lived for seven years um, and then um, moved to the Middle East after that um, where I completed high school. Um, 
so I mean, I think there's a, I think there are a lot of formative food experiences in there. Um, I want to hear about all of them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, Italy and France, some of the greatest um, food countries in the world. Um, but I, you got to throw India um, and also many of the Middle Eastern countries into that ring as well. Where um, in India were you living? I was in New Delhi. Okay, and for for your entire seven years that you were there, um, were you going to like a private school? Were you? Yeah, I was going to the American Embassy School. And okay, so your one of your parents is a foreign dignitary. Um, no, that my dad's a consultant, and my mum was looking after us. Okay, um, but it was the best school. Um, kind of in the area where we were living. So we went there. And so do you have a lot of experiences of eating um, food when you were in New Delhi? Oh my God, <laughs> totally. I mean, we, we I, I remember very distinctly moving there. And I think that, um, I mean, hospitality is just so central to, um, so central to, to the culture. Um, and, you know, as an outsider coming in, like before you learn to speak the language and before you make any friends, um, I think that food is really kind of the the window you, that you enter through. Um, and, you know, I remember I remember like spending Saturdays with my parents, visiting all of their different friends and going to meetings and, you know, every 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 home that you entered, um, every office that you walked into. Um, people greeted you with food um, and with drink. Um, and we used to like nominate who would take the hit at each place we would go to. Like, okay, dad, you've got this one. And he would, you know, double down on the eating and take seconds and say, oh, thank you. And then, and then, you know, it would spin around you, in circles. And you come can't to be next, rude you, and say you're you full. You can't be rude and say you're full. Yeah. And you are absolutely going to be given the most gracious, generous hospitality everywhere you go. So I think that that was a huge kind of... Um, uh, it was a you know very positive early experiences around food. Um, Are there spice markets that you remember exploring, or smells of New Delhi that really ring out for you? Like that that still yeah. is there any spices <laughs> you put it under your nose and you think, oh my god, I'm, I'm five like, well, years old. I, I love. I've got a, I've got a forever love of cardamom and also you know we use a lot of fennel seeds in Italian cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in in India, it's called samph, um, and like I just like to chew it. Because you know, typically at the end of end of the meal there, it's like a digestif, and they're often the fennel seeds are like dipped in sugar candy and dyed pink and white and silver. Um, so I've still got a taste for that. But I, I absolutely love Indian cuisine. But you know, even more than the food itself, I think that the hospitality that is really, really kind of ingrained um, in the culture there is completely infectious. And then in the Middle East, where did you end up going? Uh, we ended up in Dubai, um, and, and and likewise, like you know hosting and and hospitality and that kind of warmth is so central to you know what was previously the bedouin culture and has now evolved into something more contemporary um but gathering around a table um in in the middle eastern case with like you know so many dishes and so much food um is just is just really kind of you know, an inspiration. Is it fair to say that you were in Dubai pre the building explosion that we see now or was yeah, it very much so, so. When, when, when I moved there, there was really like one, there was one main road, um, Sheikh Zayed road. Um, and there was the zoo, which I lived behind and, you know, a smattering of villas, um, and the American school where I went. And so you're, your dad is a consultant. You're moving to, you know, far-flung places all around the world. Did it seem natural to you? Did you think, oh, my life is that I'm, I'm here for a couple years and then we move again? Or did it always feel 
abrupt and kind of scary to move to a new place? Um, I really only think about, like, there's only one real move that I really remember. Moving from, uh, I think I was, I was quite young. I was, I was four years old when I moved to India. And I have a, I have a few memories around, like, hitting the soil in India. Um, but I, I, I hadn't really started school in England. Um, and I was too young to take it too personally um, and fell like wildly in love with Delhi um, so, so quickly. Uh, I think the difficult move was from um, Delhi to Dubai because they were kind of polar opposites. Um, and I really truly considered um, Delhi my home. Uh, and I left behind a lot of friends. Um, I left behind, you know, my tree house. Um, and uh, so I, th- I think that was a challenge. But I think, you know, I think diplomats often stay in places kind of two, three years for their postings. But we were very lucky uh, to spend serious time in a couple of places and really get to develop um, relationships, friendships, um, and get to really kind of know a culture and live in it for a while. When you're in Dubai, did any aspects of uh, the conservative culture, did did you feel any of that? Like being in a a Muslim country, um, did that impact your life in any way? Or were you kind of isolated and insular living and going to the American school. Yeah, I think they don't, they don't, there's no drinking um, alcohol really. Um, And that's a large part of hospitality. You can, can, in Dubai, Dubai is kind of the most liberal of the Emirates, but you can, Mm -hmm. you can drink um, in hotels. Okay. um, And you can also obtain a license to purchase a limited amount of liquor uh, to consume in your own home. Um, But no, I think the, I think the huge difference between living in Delhi and living in Dubai is like, is, is isolation versus integration. In Delhi, we were like, all of our friends were locals. We were friends with all of our neighbors who were from Delhi. Um, I learned to speak Hindi. Um, I participated in, in all the celebrations and local festivals. And I really felt like I was, you know, I was a Delhi girl. Um, and then when you move to Dubai, um, I think the conservatism of, you know, the the indigenous cultures are completely separate from our experience um we you know lived in a kind of an expat bubble um which i didn't which i didn't love and i felt a big a big hole um having come from such a kind of vibrant and inclusive um uh culture in delhi I would be remiss if I didn't ask you specifically about the food in the Middle East. I run a Mediterranean Middle Eastern restaurant. We do chicken shawarma. We make our, <laughs> we make our own pitas. Um, I haven't had the opportunity uh, to visit Dubai. What is the food like there? Um, are there large shared plates that you can tell me a little about i mean the food is spectacular um the food is spectacular um i mean one of my most formative memories when we first moved there and the parents are really trying to get us on on side um really trying to get us to stop moaning about having left um, please be happy here please be happy here we went to um kind of a Bedouin style camp and you know this I'm sure this is very touristy but they take you out into the dunes into the desert um and you know you get to ride the camels and yada yada um but I think the thing that I really remember is in like the central tent they had this giant goat dish and they had cooked the entire goat um and stuffed the belly with rice and dried apricots um and pistachios and saffron and I'm sure lashings of butter and roasted the whole thing and that was kind of put out onto this directly onto this you know large central table and then there were like durries and cushions all around it. Um, and that was kind of, uh, you know, the center of the evening along as well as like, you know, wonderful coffee and tea um, and 
oh oh the coffee's amazing there's so much sugar in it and also cardamom going back to that um and then and then smoking shisha so I think that was kind of a that was a really beautiful introduction to the cuisine there but there's a lot of um there's a lot of uh like you know Middle Eastern cooking is I think you can really liken it to Israeli or like uh Lebanese um and you know we would have uh labneh for breakfast with cucumbers uh olives and olive oil um and uh you know, I think the, 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 the generosity in terms of like selection and the vibrance of the vegetables um, and the use of pulses and herbs um, is something that like definitely captivated me. It's a wonderful, wonderful cuisine. It sounds very romantic, all the traveling and eating and everything. Did you at a young age think to yourself, I, I feel more passionately about food than maybe other kids or my siblings or my parents, or did that not develop until later on that you, that you became, uh, as passionate as you are to become a chef one day? Yeah. I don't think you notice it when it's the norm. Um, so in my family, my family entirely revolved around its next meal. Um, and no matter which country we lived in or where we traveled to, we'd got, we got to do a lot of traveling in all the regions where we lived. Um, and then every summer we would go home to, uh, spend a month in England with my grandparents and then we would travel for two months so I think that traveling was um sort of a core a core part of my childhood and something that we were very lucky to do given our geographic locations we really got to explore different parts of the world and um we kind of explored through food um and through eating and the dinner table and coming together for you know a meal every day um to kind of hash out what we were what we've experienced what we were learning and um really was this was the focal point of all of our traveling uh we always traveled for food um we always came you know came home to uh, a table filled with it um and that was very much normal my parents are obsessed with food my siblings are my mom is a consummate entertainer um and did a huge amount of you know dinner parties um you know, in, in all of the places that we lived. Um, and we would go to the markets together. And, I, you know, in India, we would go to three different markets to get various things. We'd go to Khan Market for this and that. And we'd pick out the Alfonso mangoes and she'd come back and make this awesome riff on a Ben and Jerry's ice cream out of these like spectacular fruits. Um, so I think, you know, I learned I learned to love being around um, the dinner table from my family and my, my, my family's way of life. Um, I learned how to um, entertain from my mum. And, you know, you don't realise that your mum's awesome at something when she's doing it all the time. Um, but she used to make... Um, she used to make this um, ginger duck and that was like her, her, uh, her always on her menu for her like show stopping dinner parties. And she said that was saffron rice and um, used to really look forward to the dinner parties because if we came and said hello and, and, you know, spoke to the guests nicely, we would get to get first dibs on all the best bits of the duck and take that upstairs and watch some telly. Um, so I think, I think it was all very, it was very much part of my life. And it was only when I moved away from my family um, that I realized like that hole and all of a sudden wanted to start filling it um I threw an insane amount of dinner parties um I spent all my free time cooking um all the joy that came from hosting and cooking and sitting together around a table at the end of the or the beginning of the day uh wasn't something that I was willing to let go of and really wanted to make um to take with me and so you did end up going to a unique cooking school, Ballymaloo, which is in Ireland, which doesn't follow a traditional rigorous curriculum. It's not a, 
uh, Parisian style. It's not a French style where you're in toques and people are yelling at you. Can you talk about Ballymaloo, how you made the decision to end up there, and also uh, who is Darina Allen and what is her significance in your life? Yeah, so after I finished university, um, I worked for a bank in New York um, for not very long. Um, I just wanted to... I, I realized very quickly that it wasn't what I wanted to do. And if, you know, if anything could have, you know, made me believe that I could do whatever the hell I wanted to, and it better be something fun. It was doing the job that I did. Um, so I spent a lot of my time there compiling spreadsheets, you know, cross analyzing all the different, you know, merits and uh, of uh, cooking schools across the world. Um, and Ballymaloo really, really struck me as somewhere totally wonderful. Um, you know, Excel aside, it had, uh, it had, it definitely had a magic that you really couldn't put down on paper. Um, and Darina Allen, who runs the school, um, is this formidable woman who I aspire to be in, in you know, in, in 30 years time. But she was really the pioneer of the farm to table movement um, in Europe. Um, you could, you know, she was kind of uh, Alice Waters contemporary. She may have preceded her just slightly. Um, but she married a farmer um, and <laughs> basically turned the farm uh, into uh, a world-class cooking school and it's only three months long but you are integrated in every part of the cycle of the farm from from the composting to the milking of the cows to the making of the butter and the cheese to the stock to yada 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 so you really live this idyllic lifestyle for three months um, where you're taught to kind of appreciate everything that comes from the soil and also get a real first-hand understanding of how much effort and love it takes to grow a carrot um so she is magic it, it doesn't seem like ba based on on how much traveling you did that you would be remotely intimidated to venture anywhere in the world to start your cooking career did you immediately jump back to england to work at the river cafe or did you go somewhere else prior no i knew that i wanted to work at the river cafe without a shadow of a doubt um yeah why um it had always been my family's like celebration restaurant mm -hmm. um so i had you know, been very, very lucky to go there sort of since since I was 10, a couple of times a year. Um, and my parents have been going there since they started dating. They pr practically right at the start of the when the restaurant first opened. Um, and it was the only restaurant I wanted to work in. I was very single minded about that. Um, I started harassing them before I even went to Ballymaloo. I started out. I'd been asking for a job there as a server since I was 16. Um, and Charles, who's the GM, he always said, he always said no. <laughs> and then I started asking if I could cook there. And he was like, well, you know, yeah, sure. He fobbed me off to the, to the head chefs. But um, yeah, I started uh, nagging them and I ended up going back for three trails, um, flew back and forth to Ireland. And I, you know, eventually I was just like, do, you know, I, I started working there when I got back from cooking school. And I, I really wasn't sure if I had the job. And one day I said to Joseph, the head chef, like, do I, do I work here? Like, I just keep coming back. But do I work here? <laughs> um, so I was, yeah, I was, I was single-minded about it. And the River Cafe is just, in my mind, sort of one of the chapels of, um, of gastronomy. And what they do is so beautiful. And they've got such a depth of talented cooks. I mean, I'm, everyone talks about Ruth Rogers and she is remarkable and she's single-minded about style and how she wants things done. Um, and there's just such a, such a depth of talent in the cooks. So, you know, you're, you're working there with 10 people and each and every one of them is, you know, you think the best cook in the world. Um, so it was a real privilege to learn from those people. Um, 
and it's it's a totally singular experience working there. So you're living in London and you're working at the River Cafe. Hopefully they started paying you soon after <laughs> yeah. you asked them if you were in fact Immediately thereafter. if you were on the staff there. Um, do you feel at that point like you're in exactly the place that, that you want to be? Do you have you have you fully solidified? Yes, I'm on my way. Oh, to yeah, yeah, becoming... yeah. It was electrifying. OK, I, yeah. Like my uh, my first week there, I remember just like. The emotions, I just, I was exactly where I wanted to be. I remember like looking at these artichokes and like tears coming out of my mind and my eyes. It was like, I, it's like I was, I was in like the beating heart of it. Um, and I think there's something amazing that happens when you, um, in terms of, a, a, you know, an accelerated learning process, when you get to experience not one, but two menus every day. And, you know, I only worked, I worked at the River Cafe for less than two years, but I had a for, like a ferocious appetite for learning and you know the education that I got there in conjunction with all the eating and cooking and researching that I was doing outside you know really it, it really gave me the fundamentals to be able to kind of cook and do what I wanted to. We're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to talk about coming back to New York after the River Cafe. Stick with us here on Heritage Radio. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni, the host of Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. I was introduced to Le Creuset cast iron skillets many years ago in my first restaurant, Muggsy's Chow Chow in the East Village. Le Creuset has the superior heat retention of cast iron paired with unparalleled performance and the ease of enamel. That means delicious food with easy cleanup. And I love easy cleanup after running my own restaurants in New York for 23 years. Le Creuset Original Heirloom Cookware is backed by a lifetime warranty. Their bold colors and timeless designs allow for an expression of personal style in the kitchen and beyond. Head to lecreuset.com slash HRN. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com to see all the new products and amazing holiday gift deals. HRN listeners will get 20% off the new Le Creuset cookbook with the code HRN. Welcome back to The Line here on Heritage Radio. My guest today is Chef Claire DeBoer. She is the co-chef of King Restaurant located in New York. Before the break, we were talking about uh, you crisscrossing the globe with your family, uh, vacations all over, and really developing a love for food uh, through your parents, which they were entertainers, they loved to have people over, and they loved to give you the experience of interacting with food, and it drew you to the River Cafe where you were working. And then after a certain amount of time at the River Cafe, what happened? What what made you decide to leave the River Cafe? And what was the goal at that time? I mean, a couple of things. Um, I met Annie, who's my business partner, and she's the front of house at King and also the sommelier. Um, I had been set up on a blind date with her. I had always, I'd always been quite precocious and ambitious when it came to um, how I set my sights on what I wanted to do. And um, from about, you know, I had always been, I've been writing menus for this restaurant that I was going to open for a very, very long time. You know, I would 
I would go to the pub at Ballymaloo and then come home late at night and sketch out all these menus and draw, you know, draw pictures of my one day restaurant. So I think it had always been on the forefront of my mind that I wanted to do something on my own that was an, an expression of all the joy that hosting and cooking for people and hospitality had brought into my life. Like I wanted to create, I wanted to create a space where people could feel all those warm, amazing feelings that I had been given by my parents. Um, and I met Annie and I'd been set up on a blind date with her. Um, and I don't really know, we have different versions of the story. She says, you know, I pinned her against the wall and said, we're opening a restaurant. Let's go. And I think, I think it was the other way around, but, um, we, on our first day, we ordered the whole menu, drank several bottles of wine, and we were decided that we were going to open a restaurant. And this was a very nebulous when and where this would happen um, type thing. We started doing um, a supper club in London together um, in my parents' apartment. Um, and she would sell the tickets and I would, you know, rustle up <laughs> like 12 course dinners for her various uh, colleagues. Um, so that was that. Um, and then on the other hand, I had um, my, my boyfriend... Um, my at the time boyfriend um, was in New York and constantly handing me ultimatums if you don't come back then um, and so there was that there was that time pressure and I Annie's think, a New Yorker correct Annie's a New Yorker right. yeah yeah so and you had two people kind had two of luring people. you over well, Annie seas. would have been delighted to open a restaurant in London she uh -huh. was very much up for the thrill of anything and I think she found Europe incredibly thrilling um, but yeah so he I needed to get a visa to come to New York to be with him Annie easily could return home um but the complication in terms of getting a visa, we either had to get married or I had to open a restaurant. Um, and uh, I mean, that was quite literally it. So we, Annie and I originally had wanted to just do uh, a pop up here for a while and kind of dip our toes in the water. Um, but a combination of needing to get a visa um, and also realizing that pop ups just are, you know, sink money sinks. Um, we decided that we would um, give it a go. Okay, so obviously there's more to opening up a restaurant in New York than, than giving it a go. It's, <laughs> it, it involves fundraising, locating spaces. Yeah. Uh, how much of that process were you able to uh, lean on Annie for? She had some professional experience. You were briefly involved in the banking world, yeah. but um, obtaining the funds and going through all those steps before you even get to put those menu ideas yeah. actually on a plate... What did all that entail? And how long did that take from when you actually like stepped it foot on very, the ground? It, it took a very long time. Um, I think that, you know, even before I think of myself as a chef, I think I think of myself as like a business owner mm -hmm. um, and kind of a restaurateur. Um, I think what has made us successful is that we're all pretty well-rounded. Um, but no, we touched down and we didn't have a clue, but like anything else in life, attacked it with, uh, I would say in this case, a lot of desperation. Um and we just, I, I don't really know how to explain this. We just opened our laptops and Googled, how do I open a restaurant in New York? Uh, we, you know, I, we were looking for investors and we didn't want to take any family or friends. So there's this thing called like angel list where people who have money, like, I don't know, write their interests. So I just looked for all these people on angel list that said they were interested in food. Um, and then I called called them uh with a link to a linkedin um and said you know let's go for coffee i googled you know i looked up the new york times anyone that was a restaurant investor that had been interviewed in something and then i i contacted them and i think i mean the raising raising money was oh god it was absolutely miserable um and that took a year and we still hadn't actually finished raising the money when we opened the restaurant um but 
uh, yeah, I didn't know any of my investors. I only knew one of my investors uh, out of around, you know, 18 that we have now before we started the process. So it was, yeah, it was wild. So you came to New York and just, you were on the hustle immediately, just yeah. pushing and yeah, pushing. Yeah, we, we had never, I'd never worked in any restaurants here. So I had absolutely zero network. You know, I would stand on the street and I would see a truck go by that said, Sid Wayner provisions and I would take a photograph of it and I would go home and I would Google what is this what can I buy from them mm -hmm. you know I would I knew this you know Bataga company that I liked that we had worked with the River Cafe so I would call them in Sardinia and work backwards to try and figure out who their distributor was here um, it was a real you know I'd go to restaurants you know there was, there was a real trend where like they wrote every single farm on the thing and you know ABC Kitchen they had a very lengthy list of like, basically just you know opened up their store cups to you on the back of the menu so I would go there and take the menu and then call every single person on their purveyor list and um it was really, you know, I think King's very small and it was, a, but, but we truly started from like negative one in terms of knowledge and just had to figure it out. Were there days on the ground here in New York where you turned to Annie or Jess or your boyfriend and said like, we should have done this in London? Never. Mm. No, no, not once. I mean, if there's only, there's like, you know, there's one city that I truly believe in the world lets you do like whatever stupid, ill-planned, financially ri ridiculous, um, you know, dream. It's, it's New York. And I think for people to like open their wallets to these random people that have never operated a restaurant, have only, you know, Annie had never worked in the industry. I'd only been doing it for two years. You know, just these random people that are like, hey, I have a dream. Um, okay, give me a million dollars. Like that's this, that's here. Um, and then for us to open and for people to respond to it in such, with so much, so much emotion. Um, I mean, that's a reflection of like New York's support for young people and young entrepreneurs. Um, and, you know, the, the obsession that New York City has with with eating out, which has worked, you know, in nothing but our favor. Do you remember being in a room and trying to sell this idea? You know, the the elevator pitch they yeah, call it, uh, yeah. or the or your pitch deck, and looking across the table and and two things: either looking into the person's eyes and saying they're totally getting it, or were there times where you said? Oh, they are just, oh they, God, they do yeah. not, they do not want to be involved in this project and they are not getting it. Yeah. I mean, when I say we ended up with 20, like eight, I think maybe 18 investors add a zero to that, to the number of people we pitched. <laughs> like it was, it was rough. It was rough. And yet, and you know, you're, you're, you know, I'm there with Annie and we're kind of like kicking each other under the table. Like you go, you go, you make the ask. Uh, no, it was, it was, um, yeah, it was awful. One of the things that I, really love and that came through in my discussion with Jess as well is like this three-headed machine that runs King. You all really can anticipate each other's thoughts and and you work quite well together on all aspects, the food side, the yeah. aesthetics, the, the business. It's extremely difficult to find one person who can be a strong partner. Yeah. Uh, how have you been able to work with more than one person as you opened King all together? I mean, I think the foundation, um, the foundations work, um, aside from being great friends and loving them both as humans, put, take that out of the picture. I think we all really fundamentally agree on the vision. Like we, each of us agrees that we want to serve, you know, this delicious, generous, 
seasonal sensitive food we all agree that we want to give the warmest you know uh kind of open but also restrained service i think we really agree on the fundamentals so you know any any debate that there is beyond that is just really productive um and helps make uh let allows us to make better decisions when it comes to each you know each 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 thing that we take on together prior to gathering the press, which has obviously helped draw people to the restaurant at the way beginning, right Mm -hmm. when you opened, what in your minds, all three of you, specifically you, what did you believe differentiated King from literally the hundreds of other restaurants in New York that are in your similar price point? Because for those who have never been to the restaurant and never seen the menu, you fall in a... um, I would call it for New York a mid-level price point. It's not your restaurant That's is very generous. Your restaurant yeah, I would is say not, we're pretty expensive. <laughs> but but for New York standards, it's yeah. not yeah, insanely yeah. expensive. Yeah. I see no forty-seven dollar entrees. No, on your menu. no, no. We never, we never let it, we never let it go above uh, thirty-eight. You're an upscale, yeah. casual restaurant, for yeah. lack of a better descriptor. Mm-hmm. But what differentiates you from many, many other restaurants that people could go to every single night in yeah. New York? Um, I think uh, we kind of very clear that we are kind of the less is more um in the less is more category um less noise uh less frills less flash less fashion more warmth more simplicity um and i think we had this real clarity about the sim- the simplicity but also the generosity that we wanted to offer um the deliciousness but and letting the letting the the moment at the table speak above everything else. Um, we didn't want to be the center of attention. We didn't want the restaurant or the food to detract in any way from like the conversation, the moment of intimacy um, that you have across from your your dinner partner at the end of the day. Um, and, you know, in terms of when we were pitching our investors, we're like, oh, you're going to have a daily changing menu. There aren't many places in New York that can manage to do that because it's, it's a bad business plan. Um, and I think it's I think that we really lent into we were so passionate we were and so set on this vision that we had we were willing to make really poor business decisions to make the most perfect restaurant in our minds um, and these the inefficiencies that we kind of really lent into defined us and made us very unique um, and it's a wonder that we've you know succeeded also as well financially as well um, but I think that a lot of restaurants in New York. Um, as as businesses before all else um, wouldn't be able to do the make the decisions we made that are incredibly time and money intensive for those listening that are wondering why a daily changing menu can be a poor economic decision it's yeah. because if you don't sell stuff there's leftover product and and that can be very detrimental but can also be exciting for the creative process totally. right and so, I think it's also I think what people don't factor into that is also the late cost of the labor mm-hmm. you know we we don't have prep cooks and line cooks. We have cooks and we expect, we train and expect every one of our cooks to be able to butcher a fish, butcher a piece of meat, make a cake and do everything in between there and delivering a beautiful, like a beautiful plate of food at nine o'clock in the evening. And do that all before and service that, starts. Exactly. And I think that there's a real holistic approach to it. And I do believe that if you're the same person prepping the broccoli as the person plating the broccoli, you're going to get a more sensitively 
cooked and approached piece of broccoli at the end of the day because you're going to have be thinking about every step of the process and how it comes together into the whole so um in terms of you know it, it is very expensive to have a daily changing menu um not only in food costs um but also in like in in the manpower that that that, that, that takes it takes me and jess being in there every day or one of our sous chefs writing the menu and then it takes a level of of, of cook um and a certain amount of investment on our end to cook to really train people how to cook and not just how to execute recipes because we don't use recipes at King. That's interesting. You've you've touched on several things which are like the antithesis of sort of high-end popular dining, which is that a lot in a lot of places, they have a tasting menu, which you do not. In a lot of places, uh, one person cooks the fish and then pr- passes it to a sous chef who mm. then plates it, forming like yeah. this total disconnection between yeah. the 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 product that gets prepped, the mees gets put on a stage. It's almost yeah. like three steps, right? And then also what you've just articulated is that because the menu changes so rapidly that you have to trust other people mm-hmm. to sort of execute your vision. Mm-hmm. All of that seems to make your life a little bit more difficult at the end yeah, of the day. It's, it's like an, we everyone, wouldn't do it any other way. Like yeah. it's like an it's an absolute joy. Like I can't imagine not writing the menu every day. I don't think there are a lot of chefs that get to also, you know, that so much of the job is just awful. Um, but there's, you know, at the, I, I, you just, I get to start the day every day, like writing two fresh menus. And I think, you know, as a, the reason why we do this is in so many ways the, for the, for the joy of that creative moment and totally. the joy of serving that to people. Do you and Jess have an idea book where you can draw on a 500 ideas or do you just really actually every morning say, how do you feel about putting a half chicken on the menu and then you both say yes let's do it with this and this and this is that really the creative process like a back and forth you bring a couple (laughs) ideas to the table yeah and I I think what's I think what's so crazy about Jess and myself is that if you think about the bank of you know food is about nostalgia and we all want to cook things that like you strum the heartstrings of our memory uh if you will um and she is almost the same age as me. She comes from almost the same place in England. She spent almost all of her summers traveling to the almost exact same places that I did. And then she went and had almost the exact same culinary education at Ballymaloo and then the exact same training thereafter at the River Cafe. It's, I mean, it's stupid. Um, and so, yeah, we're just pulling out of the black box of our memory of our memories of food. Um, and, you know, other than the Middle Eastern and kind of uh, sort of more Asian things that are in my bank. Um, we draw on like, we draw from incredibly similar, like happy places. And that's really reflected in the menu. And um, <clears throat> I think that's why we worked so well together culinarily is because we can push each other's boundaries. And, you know, we can bounce things off each other and start with something and end with something completely different. But it's all very much in the same vein, the same ethos coming from the same place. So your mom helped to design the restaurant and you were able to draw on a lot of childhood nostalgia for creation of the menu. It truly seems like it is a collaborative family Mm. affair. Uh, When you were getting open and you were working with your mom on the interior design, the aesthetics of the restaurant, what did that, what did that feel like? Was that, was that a sort of a a brilliant, wonderful time for you to be realizing your project with your mom by your side? Or did you want to kill each other? No, she might have wanted to kill me. I was a terror. Um, Oh, poor mom. No, she did a fantastic job, mainly of holding me together and uh, 
like she she's just got the most incredible style and taste and the thing is she was so intimately connected to the whole like restaurant thing you know like I'd been I had been hanging out with her for our entire life like getting inspired by the places we were at together um and we very much had the set of we had the language um the language to describe what we wanted to do and what we wanted to go for um and she has the she has the skills to translate that language into a physical space and when she did it so so wonderfully like we every single thing that makes that space unique is a brilliant idea that she had um so I think I was I think I was incredibly challenging to work with I was a bit like a slave driver and that slave was my mom um she not only did design the entire restaurant but she was kind of on spent her days doing wild goose chases around the city getting random you know buying trying to find cream of tartar for some R&D that I was doing so she she was she was remarkable um both as an emotional support in the process but also as someone who really helped define um how King looks and feels both you and Jess described a lot of the plates uh, at King as sort of pared back. Mm. There's not a ton of things going on. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, old school technique there. Mm. Not a lot of flash. Yeah. And not a lot of things that are extra. Yeah. Do you yourself enjoy eating ever at restaurants where there's highly composed plates and there are 40 things going on? Or is that just something that does not appeal to you even in your outside life of just eating um you know i think that there's just remarkable things going on in hospitality and food at kind of every end of the spectrum uh i i take the most joy from eating um simply cooked things whether that's you know going to flushing and having just the best dumplings um or going to you know uncle boone's which is a pretty pretty upscale restaurant and having some exquisite exquisite you know thai food or um i i really i really enjoy eating things that are stripped back like i i I like to just want to eat a head of fennel or like um bowl of pasta or um but i think beyond I generally like eating food that doesn't distract or take away from the people that I'm having a good time with. Um, I like dynamic dinners with a lot of laugh, with a lot of laughs and a mm. lot of chatter. And so the show at dinner is always the people at the yeah, table. Yeah, unless, totally. yeah, totally. Yeah, and everything should come together, like the food, the booze, you know. Um, and and occasionally that's in uh, you know some really high end thing, um, but I I generally don't I generally don't go in for that. King is quite small and it's been very successful and you're having a great, it seems like you're having a great time and you're also having a wonderful run of people finding out about the restaurant because it's been getting very good press. Often when that happens, um, offers come in from outside folks or existing investors. They say, we're hot. Let's do King 2 in Upper West Side, Tribeca. Or Mm -hmm. maybe someone comes calling and says, hey, King London or something like that. I'm curious if you have a desire right now to do either a version of or a spin-off project of King or does that sound totally unappealing to you right now? I don't have um I don't have any desire to do like King 2. Mm-hmm. I think the I 
I think we've run that creative process. I think I, I take a lot of joy um, and I'm very stimulated by going through the creative process to give birth to something. So thinking about everything from the way it looks and feels and smells and tastes, you know, the hello that you get at the door and the, you know, how the cream is placed on the side of the plate, like all those things coming up, coming up with that, with a blank slate is awesome like I'm sure that resonates with you as well as a restaurateur um and I wouldn't I wouldn't want to forego that like in opening something else for the sake of it like king exists and and I love it with all of my heart um I don't want to do another king I would I would jump at the chance to go through that whole creative uh process again to give to to create you know something different something something that offers something something else to the community maybe that we're in or maybe elsewhere um but I don't think I would. I don't think I would do King Two. What would happen to the original? I mean, <laughs> one of the things that really caught me off guard. I think I was slightly mentally prepared for it, but not fully. Was that when I transitioned from being the chef of someone else's restaurant to opening my own restaurant? Is that I didn't realize how many of the things I would now have to do because I was in charge that have nothing to do with mm. creative dish conceptualization yeah. and also n- not. <laughs> hospitality, not interaction with with uh, customers. There's so many things from talking yeah. to lawyers to taxes to all this kind of yeah. stuff. Um, I have several things that I don't like doing, but since <laughs> this is about you, what are some things that have been really difficult for you to acclimate yourself to as not only a chef of a restaurant, but also you are you are the owner of the restaurant and everything stops with you? Yeah, uh, so, so much of the job description I abhor. Um, yesterday, uh, the roof fell in in the kitchen because we had a leaking steam pipe that finally soaked through. Oh, that sounds fun. All the drywall, you know, went all over the food. And, you know, we were actually having a meeting with our lawyer at the time to discuss uh, some stuff, you know, legal stuff. Um, and he ended up spending the session on a ladder trying to fix the ceiling. Um, there, there's, a, there's an awful lot about the job that... Um, he charged, I I he charged you by the hour for I, that, just so I, you know. <laughs> He's probably still cheaper than a plumber by the hour. You know what they're like. <laughs> totally. Um, we did a huge saving, actually. Um, uh, so, yeah, there's, I think, I, you know, I think that when we, for the, we've been open two years now. And for the first two years, you're all boots on the ground. You're all hands on deck. You can't afford to hire anyone to do anything else. So you're doing everything yourself. And in our case, we're very lucky because there are three of us doing it all. And, you know, at times I would say doing a pretty shitty job of it. Um, you know, the, the, the fact that we've got to the point where we have like the sky falling down in the kitchen is a clear indicator that we are not watertight. <laughs> like, um, so there's that. But I think that, um, I, you know, our, our, the goal in like doing, doing well and doing more business and like making more people happy by selling them food and drink is that we can really leverage ourselves and focus on those things that we do best. You know, in mine and Jess's case, that's like writing a really thoughtful menu and inspiring a kitchen team and training everyone from the lowest level cook how to how to see a dish from its conception to its, you know, to the, to the moment it's plated. Um, and I think likewise with Annie in the front of house, I think we're coming to a turning point in the restaurant, which is really exciting, where we can we can afford to, and we actually need to start hiring other people to do, you know, some of the maintenance. <laughs> um, so I'm really excited to, to not be doing those things anymore. If you check with me in a year, I'm sure I'll be still sweeping up the basement, but I live in, I live in hope. One of the things that um, can often become difficult when, 
you become the top of the food chain, when you become the owner and the chef is that uh, you sometimes lose the ability to have someone who you can lean on and learn from, mm-hmm. right? When you're a, a line cook and a sous, there's often people there that have 10, 20 years more experience than you and you can um, gather so much information and knowledge from people. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes when you're at the top, people are looking to you for that. Um, I'm curious, do you go somewhere, it could be another restaurant, a cookbook, a mentor on the phone, but where do you go when you are looking to to continue to grow and hone any of your skills, front of house or back of house that you feel aren't where you want them to be yet? I'm really glad you brought that up. I think that, um, you know, we talk a lot about all the amazing things that come with uh, being such a young, you know, business owner and, uh, and chef, head chef at a restaurant. Um, I think one of the things that I most often lament is that I no longer get to cook under someone who has all these wonderful abilities that I might not have. Um, I think I keep wanting to go and do stages undercover other places. I think about that all the time. I think about it all the time. I'm like, I have a list on my desktop on a sticky of like, everywhere I want to go and cook. That's so funny. I have about 20 restaurants in New York that I just would love Love, to go work at. And I think that, yeah, no, it's like, oh, can, you know, you know, some people are very skeptical. Like, oh, no, you can't do that. It looks like you've, it looks like you've, you can't do that. Like, it doesn't look good for King. But I'm like, I, like, you know, like, let me go. Like, I miss learning. I miss learning. The learning curve is something that we really attack on our own. I think we have loads of mentors that help us through all of the kind of front of house, logistical business operations and ownership questions. But when it comes to like just cooking next to someone who is like a bread ninja or like, you know, I, I long, I long for that. And I get so excited every, every time we hire someone that's got a capability that I don't, you know, we hired this this cook who's now become our sous chef and um, she can make stolen and she can make amazing puff pastry. And um, I'm like, you know, setting up lessons with her. I'm like, can we come in an hour early and can you teach me how to don't tell anyone like let's you know. <laughs> um, and I think, so I think, I think there's a huge part of me that wants to look, take six months off and, you know, go here, there and everywhere and get back in the um, classroom. Continuing education. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Well, congratulations on two years. Uh, Hopefully down the line, you'll be able to sneak out and put on a fake wig and go stage at a, at a restaurant somewhere else. Uh, You'll be seeing me at Contramar. (laughs) (laughs) To everyone that is listening, please tell them where they can find your restaurant and when you are open. Um, We are open seven days a week, lunch and dinner. And we're on the corner of King street and sixth Avenue. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Eli. And to everyone listening, please join us here every Tuesday at 11 a.m. for new episodes of The Line with more chefs and restaurateurs here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization 
driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.